These are the confessions of American Christians repenting of American Christianity. This is the world we made. Okay, I just want to sort of fly the conversational airplane over some landscape here without really landing it. Just hit some things that I think we'll want to have talked about. So what are the arguments against abortion, guys? There is kind of sort of the fact that, you know, it's murder. Before Roe v. Wade, most states had laws forbidding abortion. And physicians took the Hippocratic Oath, which says, quote, I shall never give a deadly drug to anyone if asked, nor shall I recommend such counsel. And likewise, I shall not give a woman a pessary for an abortion. 2,500 years of a pagan document testifying to the fact that pretty much everybody knew this was evil. Yeah, abortion isn't evil just because it kills the baby, though. Mother Teresa, yes, that Mother Teresa, said abortion kills two persons, the baby and the conscience of his mother. The mom who paid the physicians to murder her kid has to live with what she's done. Okay, so it's murder, it's sin, it kills the conscience. That's really all we should have to say. But let's go through some of the other arguments. Uh, First, let's just talk about the science for a minute. So from the moment of conception, an unborn child has all the genetic information that distinguishes him from any other human being. 46 chromosomes and his own DNA, he's a unique human being. Like we said, physicians have tried to change the definition of conception from fertilization to the successful implantation in the mother's womb. But why? Implantation doesn't change the little person in any way. It doesn't suddenly activate him or something. He's not a lamp that only becomes a source of light when it's plugged in. Okay, but let's argue, just for giggles, that you can't prove when an embryo becomes a person. Well, can you prove when he's not? Uh, If we're going to argue for abortion, we need to prove definitively that it's not a person. You can't shoot something in the woods because you're mostly sure it's a deer and not a human. Okay, but what about the questions that many church fathers talked about? Insolment, personhood, quickening, all that stuff. Church fathers had lots of different theories about how and when exactly God makes a person a person. Okay, but they had very little scientific understanding of how the reproductive process even works. And there's never been any one accepted church dogma about that. Yes, church fathers speculated, but you know what else they did? They condemned abortion. Besides which, biblically, it's pretty clear that the tiniest embryo is a person. We have to start with the fact that men and women are made in God's image. We can argue about the minutia of what image and likeness mean, but God doesn't leave us guessing as to its importance in life and death matters. The image of God marks man's whole being, body and soul. To kill a man is to destroy God's image in that man and defy the God who placed it there. Can you, before we go further on that, can you explain exactly why you would say that these are lives when they're that small? Because if your wife has an early miscarriage, you have trouble mourning it the way she does. Because it just seems like it doesn't have substance. Her her belly never swelled. She doesn't have a baby bump, all this stuff. Don't we need to explain why we would speak of it as life and as being killed or preserved? 
What is it? Isn't it really just some cells? It's a conceived child. The Bible talks about life beginning at conception. How does the Bible talk about that? Oh, in sin my mother conceived me. (laughs) Meaning that from the moment of conception I was accounted guilty before God. Which you only account persons guilty, not cell clumps. That's where my mind goes. But also, Jesus, as a little embryo, was worshipped by another embryo. John the Baptist, who leaped in his mother's womb. Mm-hmm. Or perhaps a fetus at that point. I and don't John the, the ba- timeline. Yeah, John the Baptist was older at that point. That's, but at that yes. point, it's certain that Jesus was what we would call... <laughs> Embryonic. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and one thing that's helpful is for people to think, if life begins at fertilization, which is always what has always been accepted by everyone, then we have to ask ourselves, when did Jesus begin? When did the incarnation begin? Did it begin when he was born in Bethlehem? Or did it begin the day before he was born, three days before, third trimester, second trimester, first trimester? And most people would say first trimester. Then I'd say, when in the first trimester? fourth week, third week, second, first, and they would say, well, I think he was there at the end of the first week. And then you say, okay, when wasn't he there as you work your way backward? Was he not there the fifth day, the fourth, the third, the second? And what people have to understand is there is no discrete point to say that Jesus did not exist following the moment when the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and he placed in her womb the embryo Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it's a very important point. And the embryo Jesus was given to Mary by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit shall come upon you. And we have to recognize that the reason murder is wrong is because that embryo and that 97-year-old incontinent man who had a stroke by virtue of being created by God have the image of God. And it's not because we attribute to that incontinent 97-year-old man or that our old embryo some set of traits that make us relate to them in a sympathetic way. As we talk about the arguments against abortion, uh, we should talk about women. What about women? Yeah, let's talk about women. Somebody should finally talk about women. God created women to be givers of life. Adam named Eve Eve. That means mother of the living. And that wasn't just descriptive. It was prescriptive. So life-giving is woman's highest calling and most noble purpose. First Timothy even says, quote, she shall be saved through childbearing, unquote, which doesn't literally mean that's how salvation works, but it shows how important it is to God's plan for women. So what about single women, Ben? What about sterile women? Don't they have value? Yes. Yes. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all this is actually a good seg into some SLED arguments. Uh, Let me throw these at you guys real quick. SLED stands for size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependence. So let's start with size. Let me argue. I'll I'll be the bad guy here. I am arguing it's okay to kill babies because they're really small and we can't see them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The more tiny and defenseless something is, the more worthy of death it is. That's how it works. Did you guys ever grow up with Horton Hears a Who? I did grow up with Horton Hears a Who, and I think it is an important book for this discussion. Okay, next argument, level of development. An unborn kid can't feel pain, can't think, isn't aware or sentient in any meaningful way, so voila, we can kill them. 
except science, you know, glorious science, is finding more and more evidence that babies are very much aware and able to feel pain at earlier and earlier stages. Also, since wind is lacking those things makes somebody worthy of death. Does it mean that adults who suffer sickness or genetic problems or whatever, they don't have, you know, a sense of pain or they don't have awareness they should die? Some people might say so. Okay, well, what about environment? The child is only alive because he or she is in an environment that supports them. If... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. But... (laughs) Let me put you on the moon. (laughs) Yeah. In outer space. These are... uh, Have you guys ever... On the bottom of the ocean. Had to read the actual ethicist philosophers that make these arguments. Some of them, yeah. Okay. Peter uh, Singer. Peter Singer is... Yeah, I think I... Amazing. One of the most evil people to... Meredith's got a big book of ethics from school and it's, it's got all this kind of crap. But let me refine the argument with the final part of SLED, degree of dependence. An unborn child requires his mother's body to nurture him and that invalidates his right to live. If Ben was in charge of getting oxygen to my space station, of course, he should do so. But, and this is a real argument that I read in a serious book of ethics... If we woke up someday in some body horror sci-fi movie and Ben could only live by being hooked up to some kind of mutated flesh tube to me, like like we're suddenly hooked together, I don't owe him walking around with a tube all the time. Hey. Well, uh, yeah, people do make silly hypotheticals like that. Yes, they do. Uh, But the fact is interdependence is woven through society as God made it. Trees need soil. Citizens are connected to rulers. Well, they shouldn't be, Nathan. No, well, sorry, that's yes. the answer. No, no, no. All right, husbands and wives Doctor, go together. Doctors and patients. Mother, child. It's one of the most precious ones. But guys, we're done with sled, but I've got some more arguments for you. What about overpopulation? Oh, yeah, the world's uh, it's going to starve. Overpopulation. No, it's not. That's no, not. Oh, it's, it's not? No. No, people are scared of overpopulation. Use something called the Meadows Report on the quote limits to growth and quote published by the Club of Rome, a think tank in 1972 and its update that was published in 2004. The report argues that unless mankind manages to reduce population growth by all means, the current economic system will collapse by 2010, around the time that the world runs out of crude oil. Uh, so Nathan? Y- yes, Benjamin? Didn't happen. Yeah, well, that's 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 actually because of a thing called economics. Oh, it is? Yeah, when resources become scarce, their prices go up, right? Kind of like what's happening in America as we record this. But that means that other things happen. People don't use those resources as much. They recycle, they invest in new tech, things change. If you make a model that just says, if we keep going like this, we're going here because that's what happens it always fails because we don't keep going like we've been going the thing that climate change models always leave out is our actual ability to adapt in unforeseen ways that render actually most predictive models all all middle predictive models really i think um, the technical term for them is crap they're just they're not helpful for instance oil usage since that original report has gone way down. And the quote-unquote green revolution has given us more ways to get food from rice and other grains. Look, there's a lot of reasons why regions of the earth don't have food today. Politics, mismanagement, and greed. But you know what the world never actually lacks? Enough food. Yeah, the world's food supply in terms of calories per day, per capita, has increased by 34% between 1947 and 2018. 
Today's level of calories available for person is 2,928 per day, which is way bigger than the daily needs of an actual person, which is about 1,800 as calculated by the Food and Agricultural Organization, which is a branch of the UN. So in terms of how much food there actually is, the world could sustain a population that's larger by 62%. But what about space? Uh, outer space? No, inner space. Space on this blue spinning ball. Ben, won't we run out of it? No, no, no. There's a lot of space, as it turns out. Per National Geographic, standing shoulder to shoulder, the entire world's population could fit within the 500 square miles of Los Angeles. Okay, so that's overpopulation. But as long as we're working through all this stuff, there are two more things. We've got to fly the conversational airplane over. Uh, we, we do need to talk about them because these kinds of arguments come up all the time. So let's talk about very quickly abortion in the case of a threat to the mother's health and abortion in the case of rape and incest. Okay, well, let's talk about the health of the mother first. Okay, so let me make the kind of nastiest version of the argument first. It goes like this. Eh, it's hard for women to have babies, but all you men want is baby-making machines, even if the baby is killing her. You tell the mother she has to stay pregnant. She can't have an abortion, even if it saves her life. She has to die so your baby can live. You're a crazy person. Ah. Yeah, they love to give you those uh, Sophie's choices. Either the mother or the baby dies. Quick, what do you do? You only care about the baby, don't you? Don't you? Which, the answer to that is easy. No, we don't. If there really was a crazy pro-life zealot who valued the life of the baby way above the life of the mother, who said that in every conceivable circumstance of this type, the mother must die for the life of the baby. I, I disagree with that person. I would disagree with that person also, but I've actually never met that person. Neither have I. It turns out pro-lifers by and large are pro-human life in all of its forms and definitely pro-mothers of children. If you want to imagine a hypothetical thing, conundrum, where it's without question 100% between the life of the mother and the life of the child, then you've imagined a painful situation that would involve prayer and wisdom and faith. And the weighing of many factors like the viability of the baby's life and so on. Factors which it turns out most reasonable pro-lifers would be happy to weigh. Well, not happy to weigh, but it would be a sad situation. But you know what I mean? We would weigh those factors. Yeah, we can imagine no-win scenarios all day. We have good imaginations. What if your car is careening out of control and you can either hit the orphanage, or the maternity ward. What if five people are trapped in a mineshaft with limited air and three of them will have enough oxygen to wait for the rescue if two of them die? What if someone hands me a magical gun that will feed four puppies every time I shoot one kitten? Oh, what do you do? These are not serious questions from serious people. If you find yourself in an actual no-win situation, you do the best you can by faith. But by and large, 99.999% of people will not find themselves in those kinds of situations. Likely nobody listening to this podcast ever will. In this particular no-win situation, you know, life of the baby versus life of the mother, it doesn't happen. Both pro-life and pro-abortionist doctors have said this for a long, long time. See, Everett Koop, remember he was the Surgeon General, said this, quote, protection of the life of the mother as an excuse for abortion is a smokescreen. In my 36 years in pediatric surgery, I have never known of one instance where the child had to be aborted to save the mother's life. When a woman is pregnant, her obstetrician takes on the care of two patients, the mother-to-be and the unborn baby. If, toward the end of the pregnancy, complications arise that threaten the mother's health, he will take the child by inducing labor or performing a cesarean section. His intention is still to save the life of both the mother and the baby. 
The baby will be premature. The baby is never willfully destroyed because the mother's life is in danger. What about Alan F. Guttmacher, MD, father of Planned Parenthood, namesake of Planned Parenthood's research arm, the Guttmacher Institute? I think he has something to say about this. Nathan, glad you brought him up. So Guttmacher admitted this, quote, Today it is possible for almost any patient to be brought through pregnancy alive unless she suffers from a fatal illness such as cancer or leukemia. And if so, abortion would be unlikely to prolong, much less save life, unquote. Bernard Nathanson was a former abortionist who wrote a work of repentance titled Aborting America. He said, quote, The situation where the mother's life is at stake, were she to continue a pregnancy, is no longer a clinical reality. Given the state of modern medicine, we can now manage any pregnant woman with any medical affliction successfully to the natural conclusion of the pregnancy, the birth of a healthy child. I mean, Gordon, the father of photology and director of medical genetics at Mayo Clinic, said this, quote, In more than 25 years now of medical practice, I have come to learn that if a woman is healthy enough to become pregnant, she is healthy enough to complete the term. In spite of heart disease, liver disease, almost any disease, as far as I'm concerned, there are no medical indications for terminating a pregnancy, unquote. Basically, there are no mothers or preborn babies facing the dreaded Sophie's Choice. There's not the way that pro-abortionists describe it. Okay, but there are mothers who do have real risks to weigh. Should they get cancer radiation treatments, for example, if it might hurt the unborn child? If they put it off, might they be risking death or moving the timetable up? And there are testimonies of mothers choosing to put off medical treatments for terminal illnesses because those treatments threaten their babies. And Jesus does say, greater love has no man than to lay down his life for a friend. So are we saying that's always the right choice? Again, if you were actually in that boat, you'd have to consider a lot of things. The relative risk, the number and ages of any children who would be left motherless, the counsel of doctors, pastors, elders, whether the doctor was a Christian, whether the baby was close enough to viability that holding out a couple weeks and taking her by cesarean section would be an option, allowing radiation to start earlier. This type of list could go on. Speaking only for the people on this podcast, none of us would want to take away that decision from the mom and dad. I mean, yes, greater love has no man than to lay down his life for his friends, and Jesus commands us to take up our cross, but that doesn't mean I get to declare unequivocally which cross you must take up at any given time. And if, for example, a mother wanted to proceed with radiation that posed some risk to the baby but offered a lot of benefit to her, that's her choice. There might be times to proceed because it's the best option available, even as we recognize that it might end up harming the child, although the doctor doesn't mean to. Sometimes the same thing might go for something that might harm the mother. We have to act wisely and in faith doing the best we can. Okay, but a lot of Christians do bristle at these kinds of arguments. And rightly so. Yeah, rightly so. Because they're used as a smokescreen for allowing all kinds of regular old abortions. Right. We make some space for the life of the mother, and then that moves to the quality of the life of the mother. And then that moves to the mental health of the mother, and, and so on. It's, it's the world's worst case if you give a mouse a cookie. And that's actually why abortion was so prevalent before Roe v. Wade. One year prior to Roe v. Wade, back in 1972, remember, abortion's death toll was already 586,760. Most of those abortions were done in the name of protecting the mother, including her quote-unquote emotional health. Which is why, as long as we're playing hypotheticals, if we were to hypothetically be writing laws outlawing abortion, we'd want to be careful about making exceptions for the life or health of the mother. A good king or a good judge can make exceptions to the letter of the law on the off chance it violates the spirit of the law. Just societies have always understood that. 
when you start to build a thousand exceptions into your law, you start to give excuses and loopholes to the evil people who want them. Okay, so I think that's enough on the health of the mother arguments. Now we should cover cases of rape and incest. As pastors, most of us are very, very sensitive to where it does and does not play in Peoria, which is an expression that's used by journalists about whether or not what they write and what they publish is going to have sympathy from mainstream America. And when it comes to the issue of women's bodies, and we think of the old Boston Health Coalition's Our Bodies Ourselves, which is essentially the, the motto, the chant of everybody opposing the reversal of Roe v. Wade, all these bonkers, angry women. Our bodies, ourselves. We have the right to control our own bodies. When you get into the issue of rape, you have a doubling down because it's not just a woman's body, a woman herself, but it's also a man violating that woman in the most horrific way short of murdering her. If there's anything that's a political minefield, it's rape. If there's anything that's a double political minefield, it's rape and pregnancy. And so as Christians, we always have to be asking ourselves, and pastors do this, is this a hill too high for my congregation? Is this a hill too high for the people that are in my office with their daughter who was raped and is pregnant? How's this going to play with my people? Am I going to be viewed as a monster if I call them to be faithful to Scripture in this? And so I would say that many or most pastors have just decided it's a hill too high. God would understand killing a child who's the product of a father raping his daughter or some man raping a woman. You really can't expect that woman to suffer doubly. And just like it's hard for us to recognize how an embryo bears the image of God, and because of the bearing of that image, it has an immortal soul and is a brother to us, okay, a sister to us. It's hard for us to imagine How's a human being who is the product of an act of violence of the most horrendous sort is our brother, that that child who is the fruit of that terrible union, which is not a union at all, but violence. But then we stop and we ask ourselves, if there is a child conceived in the womb of a woman, is that child an image bearer of God? And everyone who's reasonable, rational, logical is going to say, yes, that child in the womb bears the image of God. So then we say, well, what is it about the circumstances of that child being placed in that womb that causes that child to lose his or her personhood, value, independent of everyone else, their, her or his independent privileges? His right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? What is it precisely that causes us to declare that person a non-person, which is what you do when you kill somebody? Did he murder someone? Well, no, but he's the product of rape, and that's a horrible crime. Well, did he rape? No, but he's the product of someone that did. But is he a product, or is he a he, or she a she? 
And so I'm just trying to get the point across that it's always difficult for us as Christians to confess Christian faith. But Christian faith starts with the doctrine that whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he created him. I'm just quoting what God said to Noah. This is God speaking. And at some point, we have to ask ourselves as Christians whether we have any commitment at all to obey God. Are we ever going to stop talking about how hard it is to obey God? And I can imagine women listening to me as a man saying that and saying, well, it's easy for you to say you're a man. And I say, yeah, <laughs> it is relatively extremely light for me to say that because I have not been raped, although I do have a relative of mine who was raped and who ended up committing suicide after it. And he was raped in a federal prison. And when he was young, it is not because he doesn't love us and doesn't know how difficult it will be, but it's because it will teach us his character. And it will make us long for his forgiveness and dependent on his power and strength. And I can't think of anything that would teach somebody more about the mercy of God than as a Christian making a decision to allow a child that is the product of the most intense and violent violation of a person that you can have, to allow the fruit of that horror to live, to give it birth, to love it, to nurse it to teach it, to clean it, to cuddle it. I don't know why we think that by killing that little one, that we're demonstrating compassion, and by allowing that little one to live and loving that little one, we're just, what, displaying heartlessness and cruelty? I am very tired of saying the hard things. I suppose you think because you asked the question, you couldn't answer it. And you think, well, you know, Tim just wrote about this. He can probably talk a little well. But I am the old guy, and I'm the least sympathetic character in this conversation. You are, you're the most sympathetic character. You're like the hero. I'm the least <laughs> sympathetic character. All right. Did I fly? Sufficiently yes, quickly. Yes, yeah, wonderful, over wonderful. The very top of that <laughs> one. Chop, chop. Let's, uh, <laughs> chop, chop. <laughs> Moving right along. Moving right along. To support the world we made and the writing and speaking of Tim Bailey, please give at patreon.com forward slash out of our minds. To support Warhorn Media more generally, you can make a tax deductible donation at warhornmedia.com forward slash give. And don't forget to rate and review, subscribe and share. Thanks and God bless. <laughs>